Good evening, everyone. It is good to be in worship on this Saturday afternoon. We have uh, spent some time in praise and worship, reflecting on uh, the love of God. And certainly communion reminds us of God's amazing, uh, unending love for all of us as his children. And so tonight we're going to begin a series of nine messages on the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And uh, tonight we'll cover the gift of love, and then tomorrow will be joy and peace. And then over the next couple of weekends, we'll cover the remaining six uh, fruit of the Spirit. And so let's uh, turn in our word to where we find the passage that covers the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. Let's stand as we honor the reading of God's word as the highest authority in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 5. We'll begin our reading at verse 16. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We'll pause our reading there. You may be seated. Now, the fruit of the spirit that are listed here in our text are uh, things that the Holy Spirit seeks. It's part of the work that the Holy Spirit seeks to do in the life of every believer. And so as we seek to understand the fruit of the spirit, there are three foundational points that I want to highlight before we focus our attention on the fruit of love. And so the first foundational point when we think about the fruit of the spirit is that. The fruit represent godly characteristics that are cultivated in all of us as believers uh, by the Holy Spirit. And this work happens over the course of a lifetime of living in the spirit. Now, we can distinguish this between fruit of the spirit and gifts of the spirit. When all of us came to faith in Jesus Christ, in that moment, we were given at least one and in many cases, multiple spiritual gifts 
for the purpose of doing the work of God. And so when you want to think about distinguishing between gifts and fruit, think of the gifts of the spirit as the things in which we do for the Lord. So if a person has the gift of teaching or uh, the gift of prophecy uh, or the gift of helps, these are things that we do for the Lord. It's sort of like our spiritual job description. But the fruit of the spirit are who we are in God. Uh, these are the character traits uh, that make up the person and nature of God. And they the Holy Spirit does that work in us over a lifetime. And uh, it doesn't happen right away. Just like uh, fruit doesn't appear the moment that it's planted in the ground, it takes time for fruit to be uh, cultivated and grown. And uh, there were several years ago when I went to a uh, Christian concert down in Fresno, and I went to listen to um, a woman who has a very beautiful voice. And uh, she's a Christian songwriter, and she's known nationally and internationally. And I learned something uh, that weekend. I had the opportunity to actually pick her and her entourage up from the airport. And I knew that she had a wonderful gift of singing. Uh, this was a gift that God had given her. And she was using this gift to be a blessing to many in the body of Christ uh, through the songs that she wrote and uh, sung. But what took me totally by surprise was when I picked her up at the airport uh, when she made her way out from the concourse and toward the van where I was parked, I realized that she was very carnal. Her and her entire uh, uh, crew, her entire entourage were very carnal. They were complaining about uh, aspects of the flight and, and uh, things about the concert in terms of plans. And I was shocked because I made the assumption that people who are very gifted of the Lord are also very godly and very spiritual people. But I learned a lesson that day that although you can be very gifted, uh, you may lack spiritual fruit. And so it's the Holy Spirit that grows this fruit in us over uh, a lifetime of walking with the Lord. Number two, the second foundation that we want to know as it relates to the uh, fruit of the Spirit is that the flesh and the spirit are in opposition to each other. If you go back to Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, Paul writes, Now those who belong to Christ, actually go to verse 17. It says, For the flesh sets its desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So the flesh and the spirit are in opposition to one another. And we'll talk more about that uh, in just a few moments. And then number three, the final foundational point about the fruit of the spirit that I want to mention is that spiritual gifts are far more important than fruit of the spirit. Turn with me to Galatians chapter or first Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth uh, about details regarding spiritual gifts and how we are to utilize these gifts in God's order. And in verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And so he's already talked about a number of the gifts and he encourages the church to desire 
the greater gifts. But then he goes on to say, and I show you a still more excellent way. In chapter 13, verse 1, he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And so what we learn here is that although spiritual gifts are good for us and the Holy Spirit gives them to us for the purpose of uh, performing the ministry that he's given us, what's far more excellent, what's far more important are the fruit of the spirit that he seeks to cultivate uh, in each of us. And uh, and the fruit of the spirit uh we cultivate over a lifetime and they will continue on. This is an, a character uh, or a nature that we're uh, cultivated in that will carry on into heaven. Whereas spiritual gifts, we see in verse eight of first Corinthians 13, he says, love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. So the point Paul is making is that spiritual gifts we will no longer use once we get into God's presence in heaven. But the fruit we will always have. Love never fails. In other words, we will always uh, be a person uh, of love in God's presence. And so these are just three foundational points as we uh, begin this series on the fruit of the spirit. So we want to shift our attention to the fruit of love. And the first thing that we want to recognize as it relates to the fruit of love is that it's first among the nine fruit of the spirit. And that's not by coincidence. Uh, the Holy Spirit um, has placed the fruit of love as the first point uh, for a good reason. It's because love is the primary characteristic uh, of God. It's who God is. It's his very essence, his very nature. In first John chapter four, verse eight, it says that God is love. And so we see right there in scripture, it doesn't say God is joy or God is peace or God is gentleness. Those are all good things and they're part of the character of God. But his very essence is love. In first Corinthians 14, verse one, it says that we should pursue love. There must be a sense of urgency in our walk with the Lord that we should pursue a gift. We should pursue uh, the fruit of love as we seek to grow in the Lord. In First Corinthians 13, verse 8, we just read it. It says love never fails. And so uh, the fruit of love is listed as the first fruit because it's the primary characteristic uh, of God. It's who he is. It's his nature. And all the other fruit emanate from uh, the fruit of love. To get a definition of the fruit uh, of love and a picture of how each of the fruit, uh, and particularly tonight the fruit of love, operate in a person, we need a dictionary. Now, the Webster Dictionary won't give us an accurate definition of the fruit of the Spirit. We need, as our definition, to look at something else. We need to look at uh, the 
dictionary that God gives us in the person of Jesus Christ, because it's from his word and his life that we get a definition of the fruit of love and a picture, an illustration of what the fruit of love looks like in the life of a believer. In Jesus, we see each of the fruit personified uh, in him. His life is a perfect illustration of the character of God. So if you want to see what pure love looks like in a person, we must look at Jesus. If we want to see what absolute joy looks like in a person, we must look at the person of Jesus. And if we want to see perfect peace, a person that lives in perfect peace at all times, we must look at the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. For Jesus is our spiritual dictionary. Now, Jesus defines and illustrates each of the fruit of the spirit. And so to give to get a definition and an illustration of the fruit of love, let's look at how Jesus defines love in his word and then how he illustrates love in his life. Turn with me to John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus is approaching the end of his ministry. And he says something profound in verse 34 as we seek to get a definition of what love is. John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus is speaking and he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. And so he gives a new commandment here uh, in uh, verse 34. And that new commandment is that we love one another even as he has loved us. Now, if you remember what the law says, the law says that we should love one another, or we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And this is a very important distinction and one that really opened my eyes when I saw it. Under the old covenant, we have that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. But under the new covenant, Jesus gives us a much higher standard. He says that we should love one another even as I have loved you. And then flip over to John chapter 15. And this is where he gives us a definition for love. John chapter 15, verse 12. Jesus is speaking here and he says, this is my commandment. That you love one another just as I have loved you. And then he says in verse 13, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So we see Jesus giving a definition of love there. Go to first John chapter three. First John chapter three. In verse 16, the Apostle John gives us the same definition that Jesus gives in the Gospel of John. In 1 John 3, verse 16, he writes, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. And so when you see what he says here in verse 16, that we should lay down our lives And you see what Jesus said in John chapter 15, 
that greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. We have a definition of what love is. This higher standard of love that Jesus gives us. He tells us that laying down our lives for the benefit of other Christians first and then other people as we have opportunity is true love. And so, again, under the old covenant, we were called to love our neighbor as ourselves, But under the new covenant, we are called to love others uh, as Jesus has loved us. And that's a much uh, higher standard uh, to love one another. It's almost like the difference between the old black and white television set versus the color TV. Uh, for those of us who are older, we remember the days when there were black and white TVs. And at the time, it was beautiful to have a black and white TV in your home where you could watch uh, TV programs. And uh, and it was wonderful to have this little box in your home where you could watch uh, television programs. But several uh, decades later, I think in the 1940s, the first color television set was built and uh, produced. And boy, did that make all the difference in the world to go from a black and white TV to a color TV. The color TV was good. But the black and white TV was so much better. And that's the difference between the definition of love under the old covenant, love your neighbor as yourself, versus love under the new covenant, love others as I have loved you. And so what does it mean when Jesus says that we should lay down our lives? It's obvious that all of us can't literally lay down our lives in the sense that we die as an expression of love. So what is it that Jesus is getting at when he talks about laying down our lives uh, for our friends? Now, to get the illustration of love, to get a better understanding, we need to look at the dictionary. And Jesus shows us the best illustration of what love is on the cross. For on the cross, we see God's wonderful illustration of uh, love, of sincere love. In the Living Bible, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, the apostle writes, God showed how much he loved us by sending his only son into this wicked world to bring to us eternal life through his death. In this act, we see what real love is. It is not our love for God, but his love for us. When he sent his son to satisfy God's anger against our sins. And so there's a few things that we can learn from this uh, passage here and this illustration of Jesus on the cross as a picture of what true love looks like. The first is that we are the object of God's love. It says that God showed how much he loved us by sending us his only son into this wicked world to bring us into eternal life. And so we see that we are the objects of God's love, human beings. And then he goes on to show that uh, he came into this world to satisfy God's anger against our sins. In other words, God's love seeks to take care of our problems, to meet our felt needs. Uh, So we're the object of his love and his love causes him to meet uh, our needs, in this case, our greatest need, having to do with sin. And then he goes on to uh, reaffirm what the scriptures teach about this difference between 
the old covenant definition of love and the new covenant definition of love. He says that uh, in this act, we see what real love is. It is not our love for God, but his love for us when he sent his son. And so, again, our love is good, but that's that's not uh, perfect love. It's his love for us. That's a perfect uh, love. And so if you want to notice uh, something that uh, Jesus had to do as uh, he before he went to the cross or something that we can learn uh, as we seek to understand this illustration of God's love. And so before he became his father's perfect expression of love for us, uh, he had to do something first. And we find what he did in Luke chapter 22. Jesus is about to give his life, but he has a moment of pause. And what he says in Luke 22 illustrates what we must do uh, if we are to operate in the fruit of love as he did. Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 42, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is praying to his father. He's about to be arrested and eventually tried and crucified. And in verse 22, he's praying and he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So remember what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter five. He said that. Um. Verse 17, for the flesh sets his desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And then in verse 24, he says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane is Jesus crucifying the flesh. It's clear from what Jesus says uh, in this prayer. He says, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so we see here that Jesus is expressing his will. First of all, it's his will that uh, this cup passed from him. And so just like Jesus had a will, all of us have our own self will. And yet he had to crucify uh, that will. And he said, not your will, not my will be done, but yours be done. And so that's something that we must do if we are to operate uh, in the fruit of love. If we are to illustrate the fruit of love in our lives, we have to crucify or die to self. The flesh is another term for our self-will. And so we have to crucify the flesh or die to our self-will. Now, before Jesus could fix our greatest problem... Uh, he had to die. And that's exactly what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter five. And it's almost like a tug of war because Paul said the flesh and the spirit are in opposition to one another. And it's like a tug of war. You got the deeds of the flesh and what the flesh wants to do on one side and you have the spirit on the other side and the two are battling. And the only way that the fruit, the only way that the spirit can prevail is if we crucify uh, the flesh. But too often Christians, instead of 
walking in the spirit, choose to walk in the flesh and crucify the spirit. And when we do that, we have it backwards. And so many believers live lives where uh, at many points they choose to crucify the spirit uh, and to walk in the flesh. But we dishonor the cross of Jesus when we do this. We are rejecting the example of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said no to his flesh and he chose to walk in the spirit of God, even though he knew that that walk would lead him to a cross where he would eventually die. So we must walk in the spirit and crucify the flesh. Brothers and sisters, when the flesh is tempting us to lie, for example, we have to die in that moment. Or if the flesh is tempting us to engage in some form of sexual immorality, we must die. Sometimes the spirit, after a great accomplishment or achievement in our lives, the flesh wants us to be puffed up about it, to be full of pride. But in that moment of temptation, we must die. And that's what the Apostle Paul encourages us in Galatians chapter five, verse 16, where he says we must walk by the spirit. And when we do that, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. When we choose to walk by the spirit, by default, we are choosing uh, to crucify our flesh. And that's what Jesus did to demonstrate his love for us. In other words, when we look at Jesus and his definition of uh, love, where he talks about greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for uh, his friend. That's what we see Jesus doing. He laid down uh, his self-will so that he could do God's will for his life. Several years ago, uh, 15 to be exact, I married my wife, Shanice, and I married her because I loved her and I was ready to commit the rest of my life to her. But something happened along the first few years of marriage. I began to discover that my love, although I thought was pretty good, was actually an imperfect love. It's almost it was almost like that black and white TV that we talked about a few minutes ago. When she was pregnant with our second child, Josiah, she began to ask me to do a number of things for her. And they were reasonable requests because we had our first child, Zaria, and she was about a year and a half. And because we had a, a small child in the house and she was pregnant with a second uh, she began to ask me to do many more things than what was normal. And uh, before we started having children, I didn't hear all of these requests. And uh, but after we started having kids, she was asking me uh, to do various things for her, like make dinner or to pick up diapers uh, on the way home from work or to give Zaria a bath. And the reality is that I didn't want to. And uh, I had a self-will and I didn't want to. And the reason why I didn't want to was because it inconvenienced me. All of these requests inconvenienced me. And um, and so I had my will or my agenda for myself, but I was unwilling to lay down my will, my agenda to meet Shanice's need. I knew what the right thing to do was. But I chose to 
honor the flesh and uh, and do what I wanted to do. I knew there was a tug of war, but in that moment and in those moments, I was choosing to gratify the flesh. But the Holy Spirit helped me to see that my love, although I thought was a good love, was a very imperfect love. It was conditional. It was conditional on whether or not I was being inconvenienced by her requests. And so that's the black and white version of love. But on the cross, we see the color version and all of its vibrant colors. Jesus said that we should love one another even as I have loved, not as we ourselves. We see a a higher form of love, a more perfect love for people on display. If Jesus acted according to the old covenant definition of love, perhaps he would have come down from the cross because when you look at Jesus, he lived a perfect life. So there was no reason why he had to be crucified. And so from the old covenant definition of love, he may have come down from the cross. But because he was inaugurating a new expression for love, he decided to stay on the cross. And as Pastor Cora prayed uh, in Second Corinthians 5, he knew no sin yet became sin for all of us. So that we now can become the righteousness of God. This is a wonderful picture, a wonderful illustration of God's love for all of us. But in order for Jesus to do this, he had to die to self. He had to say, not my will, but your will be done. And this is how Jesus lived every day of his life, constantly dying to self. Jesus was always tempted in the flesh like you and I are, but he always chose what the, how the spirit was leading him and not what the flesh wanted to do. Imagine any uh, teenage or young adult man. He's going to have lustful thoughts for women. And so Jesus had those same uh, temptations for lust. But in that moment, he chose to die every single time he was tempted. Think back to some of the miracles that he performed when uh, Lazarus was sick and he eventually died and uh, they came and asked for Jesus to come and he eventually came. But by then, Jesus was already dead. Imagine if you or I were in the place of Jesus and we went to the tomb and we told Lazarus to come out and he came out. A man who was dead now is alive. Do you think that would puff you up just a little bit? But yet Jesus, in that moment of temptation, he died to pride. This was the characteristic of Jesus' life every single day. He constantly was tempted like you and I are, but he died to self. And so this is the wonderful illustration of what it means for us to die to uh, ourselves. And this is what Jesus tells us to do in Luke chapter 9, if we are to become his disciples. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. When he talks about taking up his cross, denying self, he's talking about we must die to our our flesh, to our self-will, to the things that we want to do. And he says that we must do this daily. 
It's the only thing that Jesus tells us to do daily. He doesn't say in his word that we should read the Bible, that we should um, pray and all of these things daily. These are good things to do. uh, But what he tells us to do every single day is to deny self and to take up our cross, uh, which is uh, to die to ourself. And when we do this, uh, then we are we position ourselves to do what the Holy Spirit is leading us to do. And so the Holy Spirit started to teach me this concept of dying to the flesh. So when Shanice would ask me to make dinner, instead of watching Monday Night Football, which is what I wanted to do, I had to die in that moment and get up off the couch and go in the kitchen and make dinner. And in those in those early years, I didn't even know how to make dinner. But the Holy Spirit helped me uh, to learn how to cook. And um, so when she would ask me, uh, she would call me and ask me to pick up diapers on the way home from work. In that moment, the flesh wanted to uh, not go and pick up diapers because it was out of my way. I was headed home and now I've got to jump off at an exit and head up the street and find a place to go get diapers. But in that moment, I have to die in order to do what God is telling me to do, which is to love my wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church and to stop and pick up uh, some diapers. Sweetie, can you give Zarya a bath? Instead of continuing to talk to my friend in that moment, I have to die to self. And I have to recognize that my wife is asking me to do something for her. And she's far more important than any other friend that I have. And I have to stop and, and grab Zarya and run the water and give her a bath. And so these are things that ought to characterize Uh, our lives as believers. We are constantly dying to self in order to do what the Spirit is calling us to do. And in this case, uh, when we die to self, the Holy Spirit can cultivate the fruit uh, of love in us. There's two more things I want to share with you that will uh, help us to love others as Christ uh, loves us. The first thing that we should consider doing as we seek to love uh, as Christ loves is to develop a mindset, develop the mindset of a servant, develop the mindset of a servant. In Philippians chapter two, if you'll turn there. In Philippians chapter two. The Apostle Paul gives us insight into what it means to have the mindset of a servant as we seek to love others as Christ has loved us. In verse 7 of Philippians 2, he says, let's go back to verse 6, verse 5. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, verse seven, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. As we seek to develop a mindset of being a servant, the Apostle Paul says that in the same way that Jesus emptied himself of all of his um, All of who he was uh, in heaven in eternity past, 
we too are to empty ourselves. Uh, it is so easy for us to, uh, as we uh, move along in our lives and become successful and, and go to school and earn degrees and get promoted on our jobs and our, our bank accounts start uh, to expand, it's so easy for us to see our identity as something other than a servant. But we have to remember that as children of God, all of us, including Jesus himself, were our servants. Uh, that's what Jesus was. Uh, he came as a bondservant. And when you think of a bondservant, a bondservant is someone is a servant who has absolutely no rights with regard to themselves. Their only task in life is to do what the master tells them to do. And how they feel about it means absolutely nothing. And so this is an attitude that we should uh, develop as followers of Christ because it's the same attitude that that Jesus uh, demonstrated in his own life. In first Corinthians chapter six. First Corinthians chapter six. In verse 19. As we talk about being servants, we must recognize that uh, we have we are servants in God's kingdom and we have uh, a master. Verse Corinthians, first Corinthians, chapter six, verse 19 says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And so Paul makes it clear here that we are not our own when we come into God's kingdom. We've been bought with a price and that price we see on the cross of of Calvary. And so we should see ourselves as. As uh, servants, as bond servants. In Galatians chapter six. Galatians chapter six, verse three, listen to what Paul says. He says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Paul says that uh, we are deceived when we think we are something, when our identity becomes all of these things that we've accumulated uh, in our life in this world. Uh, we deceive ourselves when we think that way. Let's look, look at what he writes about himself in Second Corinthians, chapter 12. Second Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 11. He says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. Isn't that interesting that the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, who traveled all over that part of the world and established churches uh, in different places and God used him in a very mighty way, considered himself a nobody. Brothers and sisters, this is the way of God. We have to consider ourselves as nobodies. We are nothing. And when we stay in that place and develop this mindset of being a servant, then the Holy Spirit uh, can work in us and accomplish his will. When we think of ourselves as a nobody, we've already, in essence, emptied ourselves. And it's easier for us to die uh, 
since we've emptied ourselves than it would be if we we if we are full of ourselves. It's much harder when we're full of ourselves to die to self. But when we've emptied ourselves, it's far easier to die. How many of us think of ourselves as servants today in God's kingdom, that we are bond servants, that we have absolutely no rights with regard to ourselves? Now, the, the, the temptation is to think, well, people will take advantage of us. But remember, we have a father in heaven who's watching out for us and he will take care of us. He will not let people he will not give people permission to take uh, advantage of us. And so that's the first uh, point I want to uh, challenge you with is to consider uh, being uh, developing the mindset of a servant. Number two, and finally, make it your aim to love Jesus supremely. And when you do, you will love others far better. I'll say that again. Make it your aim to love Jesus supremely. And when you do, you will love others far better. Our love for other people, certainly for other Christians, should spring out of our own love for Jesus. And we know what it means to love Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 15 that if we are to love him, we are to do what he commands us to do. We are to walk and live in obedience. And so as we are seeking to live in obedience to the word of Christ, expressing our love for Jesus, and we do that uh, day and month and year after year, more and more, guess what happens? We are able to love others far better than we could otherwise. I love Shanice far better today Ten years after I realized how imperfect my love was, only because my love for Jesus has grown over the past ten years. And so every time she or anyone else has a request that inconveniences me, uh, the Holy Spirit reminds me that uh, I'm a servant. I have no rights with regard to myself and I do what she or what others are asking me to do. And uh, but it flows out of a relationship, a love relationship with Jesus. I love my kids a million times better today than I did years ago because of my love relationship uh, with Jesus. And brothers and sisters, this is what uh, this is what uh, it means uh, for us to live a life in Christ, that our love for him is so uh, great and so wonderful that uh, it's much easier for us to die to self and to love other people uh, because we are seeking to honor the Lord um, in our lives. And so that's it. Praise the Lord.